right, indeed, our summer series here, The Walk, and our series brings us this weekend to a very important and I would say like make or break ability to make decisions and to make decisions that are consistent with God's will and done in God's way. And let's just acknowledge something. We make decisions every single day. You've already made decisions today. We make decisions big and small. And it has been said, and I think rightfully so, that we are the sum of our decisions. You can look at your life and see how little decisions along the way that seemed even little at the time had huge implications and in many ways determine who we are today, uh, what we're doing, where where we're living, uh, careers and family and just so many relational things based on decisions along the way that we made or perhaps uh, did not make. Spiritually speaking, the decisions we make, perhaps more than anything else, will reveal the values in our heart and the things that we really prioritize and in so many ways determine the quality of our walk that we wanted to take a weekend and to talk about it. So today, which way? When we have multiple options, how do we decide? How do we know what God would have us to do? And is that even a right way to think about it? So here we are in the summer. It's the summer. It's the end of June. We're all sort of chilling in the summer. You know, and week in, week out, we have biblical expository sermons. And, you know, it's kind of nice at times to do things a little different, don't you think? especially in the summer, get out of the routine, that sort of thing. And I'm setting this up because this is a really weird message that I'm about to give to you. And I need to make something clear to you that today's message is entirely sarcasm. The whole thing. In other words, what I really intend to say is the opposite of everything I'm going to say. And so you are going to have to invert as you listen to what I say to know what I really am saying. Sarcasm. This is kind of like in the 90s when it was popular to say something and then you get to the end and you go, not. Remember that? Right? So I'm kind of saying right now at the beginning of this message, before I say anything in the message, I'm basically saying over the message, all of it, not. And you need to know that I'm saying that. Otherwise, little sound bites that might be taken from today's message are going to sound like heresy. And if you're visiting here today and you didn't quite catch the intro because the kid was sort of squirming or something like that, let me repeat again. I mean the opposite of everything that I'm about to say. So you're going to have to listen very carefully. I think you'll get it. Last night's service did, which is a good indication. And so here's the title, which way a helpful guide to successfully making really bad decisions in life. Now I'm going to go down and I'm going to take a sip of water. And when I come back, we are in not mode.
Today it's my privilege to speak to you on the subject of how to live foolishly and how to create a very helpful pattern in your life of really bad decisions. Now just to make sure that we all understand what mode I'm in, I want to just do a couple of test statements. First of all, Pastor Steve is married. Kids hate Albany's Candy Factory. The Cubs will eventually win the World Series. All right, it would seem that we are understanding the mode that we're in. My goal here is that all of us would leave here with a greater determination to live the foolish life, not the wise life. And here's why. Wisdom is overrated. And if we're going to create a habit, this kind of uh, habit, a momentum in my life of making really bad decisions, the first thing that we have to try to do as best we can is to see wisdom as being the enemy of what I really want to do. So let me begin by talking about that and by defining what wisdom is. Human wisdom is the ability to live and make decisions according to God's truth in the day-to-day of life. It is the appropriation of God's eternal wisdom into my mind and into my heart and into my desires in a way that shapes generally the direction of decisions that I make in my life. Human wisdom values what God values, pursues God's goals in ways that give God glory. And clearly this is not the way that we want to live. So wisdom is God's turf. All truth is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom as well. And the Bible talks about the wisdom of God. Romans 16, 27, the only wise God. Job 12, 13, with him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And this leads one trusted a theologian of mine to say this about God's wisdom. God's wisdom means he always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Now, in his love, God has made his wisdom available to us so that we can choose goals that are consistent with his goals and choose ways towards those goals that are pleasing to him. Now to us, wisdom isn't necessarily going to feel like wisdom. It's more going to feel like reverence, like I'm putting weight, I'm putting stock in what God thinks about this. This is known in the Proverbs as the fear of the Lord. And what happens when we are fearing the Lord is that we subtly begin to prioritize the things that we think that God wants in our life and we subtly pick the things that uh, the best means towards those goals here's proverbs 1 7 the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now look at that verse very carefully because some people read that verse and they see the fear of the Lord as the way that you want to go. And so they begin to reverence God and all that. But clearly this is not what we want. We want to live out the second part of the verse. Fools successfully despise wisdom and instruction. And this is what I'm commending to you. Try to avoid the first part and try to live out the last part. And the best way to do that is to just see wisdom as a kind of enemy to you being happy in your life. So, this I think is one key to the whole thing. Do your best not to think about God at all in the decision making. Remove him as much as you can from your thoughts. Now you might say to yourself, but I've been a Christian for a very long time and this is hard for me to do. Here's what I would suggest. There are many people who go to church who do this successfully all the time. On Sunday, they will sing songs, read scriptures, take notes to sermons, listen to radio broadcasts about the wisdom of God and the Bible and act like this is really important to them. But then on Monday, somehow they're able to shed all of that and actually live their life however they jolly well please. I would encourage you to find people like this and to ask them how they do it. How do you separate what you say that you believe from the way that you actually live because this is not easy to do and i'm not up here to tell you i don't know how to do that but there are many people who are very good at it i would seek their counsel they might some have some helpful suggestions the only thing i can think of is that mostly they're just obsessing over themselves and their faith is just a charade so that's a good place to start wisdom is the enemy you want to be the fool despise wisdom That's the way to go. Now, you might say to yourself, I don't know that I can do that because I need to feel in my mind and my heart that I'm actually living wisely. And so I, here's the good news. There are several really great alternatives to wisdom that I want to commend to you. And the great thing about these alternatives is that they are going to feel like wisdom to you even while they're actually foolishness. So here are some great ways to go about making decisions in life. First of all, as best you can, I would encourage you to base decisions on feelings. Ask yourself, what am I feeling in this moment? And how might this feeling guide me in my decision making? Because the great thing about feelings is that you can guarantee what about them? They are going to change. And see, now this is the beauty of living the foolish life because when you make decisions based on feelings, you are guaranteed on the other side of the decision that you're going to feel differently about the decision that you made. But now you've made the decision. And so it fills your heart with doubt and despair about the decision that you've made, which creates even greater depths 
of doubt and despair. And typically, if you get this going, you can make further decisions based on the second generation of doubt and despair, which is even more complicating to life. And you see, this is the vicious cycle down into the foolish life. And that is the cycle you want to create in your life. Do it. You'll love it. It's great. Now, this was harder to do in generations past because back in the day, uh, people in church prioritized more what they thought about something and the rationale and the whole sort of emotional side was not valued as highly as what you thought about something. But today, this is super easy to do because we've been raised to live this way. So I would encourage you to um, memorize verses in the Bible like this. If it feels good, do it. Anything that feels so right can't be wrong. I mean, write those verses down. These are good ones to like put on the fridge with a magnet there. Just a daily reminder that the goal today is to live according to my feelings. This will be very helpful to living the foolish life. The bigger the decision, I think the more important it is that you base it on feelings. So think to yourself, is this a little decision? So it maybe doesn't matter as much what I feel about it. But if it's a big decision, how do I feel? Think very carefully about that. Some people who really have done this well have actually left their marriages because their marriage didn't feel like it used to. That's what I'm talking about. Isn't that wonderful? That's great foolish living. Here's the second alternative to wisdom. Hunches. Okay? Now this is similar to feelings because a hunch will feel inside kind of like a feeling. But in reality, a hunch appeals to our desire to be countercultural and to kind of to swim against the tide, to go against all common sense. Learn to say over important decisions things like this. I know this doesn't make any sense at all, but I have a hunch. That's a really great way to go. All right? That is really great. And when Christian friends come to you and try to convince you that the decision that you're making is not a good decision, I would just encourage you to remember that they don't love you. And they don't think, they're not looking out for your best. Hunches. It's a great way to go. Third, and this one's sweet, fleeces and signs. This is a great way to make decisions in life. Now, if you're not familiar with what a fleece is, let me just remind you, Judges 6, there was a judge of Israel who was called by God. His name was Gideon, and God wanted Gideon to lead Israel into battle. But Gideon was afraid and wasn't sure and needed some reassurance. And so Gideon says to God, God, if you want me to lead me to lead the army into, into battle, I want this fleece that I have, which was just a piece of cloth, basically. I, I'm going to set it outside, and I want the cloth to be dry, and I want the ground around it to be wet. That'll be a sign that this is what I'm supposed to do. And he wakes up the next morning, and sure enough, that's the way that it was. But this wasn't enough for Gideon. He said, okay, God, 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 one more time. What I want to do is to reverse that. I want the, what did I say the first time? I want the cloth to be 
wet and I want the ground to be dry. That'll be a, a sign that this is what I'm supposed to do. And sure enough, it was. And so down through the, the centuries, Christians have looked at that passage, this very isolated, supernatural passage, and have thought, this is the way to make decisions. This is what God wants us to do, is to follow the example of Gideon and to create fleeces when it comes to making decisions. So when it comes to making a decision, tell God something like this. God, if you want me to do blank, then you need to do blank as a sign. Okay? Should we say that together so you can practice it? If you want me to do blank, then you're going to need to do blank as a sign. Now, sometimes fleeces are actually stealthy wisdom. Like, for example, if you're trying to sell your house and you say, God, if I get an offer twice what my house is worth, that will be a sign that I need to sell my house. When in reality, especially in a down market like right now, if you get an offer twice what your house is worth, you don't need a fleece or a sign to know you ought to sell your house, right? Okay, so it's, they can be a kind of stealthy wisdom. But most fleeces are viewed by God's people as a kind of direct revelation from God. Where some weird, strange providence leads them to believe that God is giving them a sign that they are supposed to go this particular direction. So I'm encouraging you to, to do this a lot. I mean, do it a lot. And you have to realize something. As humans, we have the power to bind the actions of the Almighty by simply saying the words. So that when we say, God, if this is what you want to happen, then you're going to need to do this. And the Almighty God, who created the universe, who is omnipotent, who is the... I mean, we're talking about God... By humans saying the words, now is bound like the genie in the bottle to do exactly what we say. Did you know that? It's a remarkable thing, the way that God decides to act when we say things like this. So treat him like a genie. And he'll have to do what you say. Another essential in this, I think, is that to believe in your heart. We have to believe in our heart that we can accurately determine and judge all the circumstances in our life and to know exactly why certain things happen. This is a sign. God wants this. Think that way. And find verses that support that. And come up and tell me what they are later because I'd like to add that to this presentation. I've searched long and hard. I know they're there. I just can't find them. I also would suggest to you that this is really helpful in relationships when you want to determine why God does something in somebody else's life, especially bad circumstances that you determine is happening to them because God is judging them for sin in their life. I would encourage you to go to them and tell them that. They will appreciate it so much. Don't let them bring up what Jesus said when the disciples did this with the blind man along the road. You'll have nothing to say. So avoid it at all costs. Finally, 
when somebody suggests that fleeces are not the way to go when it comes to making decisions and that God actually wants you to grow up and to apply the, the revelation that he's already given in the Bible to the day-to-day of life and to quit being a baby in your Christian walk, view that person as a raving lunatic, especially if he is a pastor whose name is Steve. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And we all know he thinks he knows what he's talking about. But he don't know what he's talking about. He's just up there flapping his gums, saying stuff, don't matter. I would also encourage you never to put a whirlpool in his office. (laughs) Don't do it. No private garage for coming to church. Don't do it. Never do it. Remember, God wants us to live superstitiously. So try to look at life that way. Fleece isn't sign. It's a great way to go. Now, some of you are here saying, you know, I am, I just can't do it. I mean, I, I, I know what feelings, I, I can't, I can't make decisions based on feelings. I know that's just not so good. And hunches, I'm not a hunch person. And fleeces and signs, I sort of gave that up a long time ago, but I need an alternative to wisdom. I have one for you. And this, I think, is if you can't do these three, you can do this one. Try your very best to view all decisions as having one perfect will of God. There is only one thing that is God's will in any decision. And call it the perfect will of God. Now let's talk about this because this gets into a little bit of of theology. Because here's what we know about God, is that God is sovereign, okay? He is sovereign over every detail of life. He has written the script for everything that's going to happen. Ephesians 1.11, he is working out everything in conformity with the purpose or the counsel of his will. And this will is oftentimes called by theologians the decreed will of God, the, the decorative will of God. And it is that mysterious unknown will of God that only he knows and that we don't know. Theologians then will contrast the decreed will of God with the revealed will of God, which he has given us in his word, which can be known, can be understood, and can be lived by in life. Are you with me? Okay. So the key to this one is to confuse the decreed will of God with the revealed will of God, and to think that what I actually need to do in my life in decisions is I have to figure out what that unknown, unrevealed will is. And to view decisions like a tightrope. Like my life is a tightrope. And I need to stay on the tightrope of God's perfect will. And if I ever take a misstep off of that perfect will, I am forever out of the will of God. And what's beautiful about this is when you view every decision as being like the will of God or condemnation, it paralyzes you from making any decisions at all. And you will stay exactly where you are, which is a wonderfully foolish way to live. And that's what we're trying to promote here. So do you get what I'm saying here? Many people do this and you'll hear it in their prayers. And I would try to pray the way they pray when they pray this way. God, help us to know what your perfect will is. And of course, by that, they're insinuating 
that there is only one course of action that God actually wants us to do. And you will wonder if you made the right choice. And you'll be on the other side despairing that maybe you made the wrong choice. Some people from this perspective have been known to say things like this. I married the wrong person. The one I was supposed to marry is still out there. And God's will is for me to get rid of the one I shouldn't have married and to go out and find the one perfect will of God person I was supposed to marry. And there are people that have left their spouses with this way of thinking. So remember, in every decision, there is only one way that pleases God. Of course, every spouse will eventually feel like they've married the wrong person because that person is a sinner. And that is why I've personally taken a vow of celibacy and am committed to singleness at all costs. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about some key questions not to ask. If you're going to live the, the, the foolish life, there are some questions that you do not ever want to drop off of your lips. Here's the first one. And this one, in many ways, I think is possibly the most important. Is my goal in this decision to please God? I cannot emphasize it enough. Never say those words right there. Never. Don't even allow them to come into your brain. And when they're there, quickly think of something trite that can kind of fill the gap and get rid of it. Now you say, well, why is that such a dangerous question? Well, here's why. When we begin asking questions like this, it's not very far until we're asking what, what would God, how would God be pleased in this course of action? How might God delight in me doing this sort of thing? And these are thoughts that are unhelpful. So always assume that God's goal is to make you miserable. That's one of the keys. If I go God's way, I'm going to be unhappy because he wants me miserable. Think that a lot. I would encourage avoiding verses like this, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I also would warn you against even thinking about the example of Jesus. Because he, more than anybody, has a way of inspiring you to live a life of wisdom. Don't think about them. Don't read the Gospels. And for sure, avoid church on Easter. Don't pray things like this. Not my will, but yours be done. I mean, look what happened to Jesus when he prayed that. Need I say more, right? If we begin to concern ourselves with what God might think or what God might want in a decision, just meditating on that tends to form our decisions around what God's goals might be for us. And then our lives might actually start being lived in the path of wisdom towards those goals. And we clearly don't want that to happen. Second question not to ask in decision-making. Does God's word give guidance in this matter? Here's what I would uh, suggest. Never... Do this. 
Are you with me? Never do this. And if you happen to go to a church where the pastor suggests that you ought to do this, I would run out immediately. This is not a place for you. You might actually end up living wisely if you followed that advice. Why is that? Let's go over it. Because God's word is his wisdom. He has expressed his word to us, his wisdom to us in the Bible. And when I, in my decision-making, big or small, begin to ask the question, does God's word give any guidance, either explicitly in some command, a moral, ethical kind of direction, or maybe implicitly by the example of the life of a hero of the faith, or whatever it may be, but when I ask those kinds of questions, what happens then is the word has a way of working its way into my heart. And now what I actually find myself wanting to do is consistent with what the word suggests that I ought to do. And we don't want that. So avoid asking the question, does God give God's word give any advice or any guidance? I would also suggest, therefore, that you not read your Bibles at all. Now, for some of you, this is not a big step, but I would suggest that you don't read your Bibles at all. Also, avoid sermons if you can, because they generally have a way of encouraging in the path of wisdom. I've also found, therefore, that not going to church is really one of the great first steps that you can do in living the Christian life. Because when you get around God's people and you get fellowshipping with them, you get they have a way, it has a way, doesn't it, of sort of moving your heart in directions that are pleasing to God. So avoid going to church altogether. I have found this to be one of the very best indications of a life that's going in the direction of foolishness when all else fails make the bad decision and just plan on asking God to forgive you on the other side of it this is a great way to go and many of God's people find the path of foolishness by thinking that way the next question not to ask have I prayed earnestly about this don't ask this question. Now you say, well, why is that so scary? Here's why this is a scary question. Is that God promises to give wisdom to his people if they ask him for it. You say, where does the Bible say that? James 1 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. When we go to God in prayer and we open our heart and our mind to God and we say, God, what do you want me to do? I I want my life to please you. I want your wisdom. Would you please give it to me? What happens in that prayer is that prayer expands the soul towards the priorities that God has in my life. So that prayer actually kind of changes us. And that is why I would encourage you not to think about prayer that way. Think about prayer as you changing God. Because we know that he needs help. He needs to know what we think ought to happen in every situation. 
So try to view prayer more about changing God than changing you. Are you with me? And then when God doesn't go the direction that you suggested that he ought to go in your life, you can look at prayer as a complete waste of time. And that is why there are so many Christians who don't pray at all. Because God didn't follow their advice. This is a great way to go. Think this way as much as you can. I would also suggest verses like Psalm 37, 4 as being subversive to the foolish life. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now I take that verse to suggest that when I am delighting in God, when I am loving God, that his priorities are becoming my priority, the priorities of my life. So that God then is free to give me what I want because he's giving me actually what he wants. Because I want what he wants when I'm delighting in him. Did you follow that? Let me say it again this way. As Augustine said, love God and do as you please. There's a great guide to wise decision making. Try to forget that right now. Do not allow that to remain in your brain. If you wrote it down, cross it off, tear the sheet out. Love God and do as you please. Okay, now I said it again. Forget that, forget that, forget that, forget that. Try not to think about it. Some of you do it really well. With everything I say. (laughs) Love God and he will give you what you want. Because when you love God, you want what he wants. And then the course of the directions of the decisions that you make will generally be in the direction that he wants. And that's the path of wisdom. And remember, wisdom is the enemy. You don't want that. So don't pray, generally, is what I'm saying. Here's another good one. And this is my last question not to ask. What advice do wise and godly people give me in this respect? A fool will never seek the advice of others. And Proverbs says why. Because the fool is wise in his own eyes, right? Friends, listen, we don't need other people's advice on things. We know it all. We really do. Some of you have sort of suspected that you know it all. Let me affirm that to you. You're a know-it-all. And that's a great way to live. Don't seek advice, especially from godly people. Avoid those people like the plague. Here's what Proverbs has to say. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Now, young people, it seems to me that you are really good at this. So let me just state the obvious. Your parents, they're stupid. Your friends at school, wiser than a thousand oracles. I would suggest to you that if you are ever not sure of what you should do in a situation, just do what everyone else is doing. I mean, can the entire sophomore class at Crown Point High School be wrong? Seriously. I would also encourage you on the path of foolishness to maximize your admiration of entertainers and professional athletes. This is a great way to go. Put, like, big posters of them up in your room so that you can remind yourself every day of the kind of person that you want to be. Model your life after them. 
You also, I would say, need to avoid that one praying grandma that you have in your life. Avoid her as much as you can. Because her love might move you towards wisdom. Also, try not to listen when she tells stories about your deceased grandpa's faith. Those have a way of inspiring you to live wisely. My final encouragement, young people, is that in these very critical days of your life where your character is being formed, where who you are is being formed, I would encourage you that rather than seeking wisdom, try your best to waste your time with as meaningless activities as you can possibly come up with. Video games are really good for this. That way, when you graduate from high school, you will be real... If you graduate from high school... You will be really, really, really good at something that means absolutely nothing. This epitomizes the foolish life. Do this as much as you can. And the time that you could have invested in learning to do something that might have contributed to your life and society, been a blessing to you in some way, will have been completely wasted. And that's off the charge foolish living. So I would encourage you to keep it up. Keep that up, young people. The score that, the high score that you got this week, totally awesome. I'll bet you can't beat it this week. That's a dare. Final thing I want to say is to point out that wisdom and foolishness, they have something in common. And that is that they have a compounding quality to them. Wisdom and foolishness both can become ways of life. Psalm 1 describes the lifestyle of a man of wisdom. And it begins by describing him as a blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And we've already talked about what the law of God does. It has a way of shaping your life towards wisdom because slowly you kind of want to do what the law is calling you to do. The fruit of this, it says in Psalm 1, is that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So wisdom and folly, they have this in common. They will compound. If you begin on the path of wisdom, a little bit of wisdom lived out compounds generally into a little bit more wisdom on the bigger decisions in life, which then is blessed by God and compounds into even more wisdom in life. Foolishness is the same way. A little bit of folly has a compounding effect. It tends to lead to a little bit more foolishness. And decisions based or made in that context will multiply into even more foolishness. And this is the path that you want to go right here. So I would encourage you on the path of foolishness, give it a try. Start with little compromises in your life. This is a great way to go. Maybe even this afternoon. Maybe even out of the parking lot here. If you're driving a real small car, tick off somebody in a Hummer, all right? (laughs) Cut them off, you know, scream at them in some way, tell them you're from some other church. Um, (laughs) uh, Find some little compromise. Keep it a secret. 
don't tell anyone. And start to do that more and more. And I guarantee you this beautiful compounding effect will bear fruit in your life. I mean, Psalm 1, the tree planted by water bearing fruit in season or the chaff driven by the wind. I mean, which way do you want your life to reflect? And obviously, it's the chaff driven by the wind. I would also encourage you to think superficially about everything. Don't value your life. Try not to think about consequences and decisions. And just make very snap decisions as quick as you can, especially big ones. I read this recently. I thought this was great advice for living foolishly. Go ahead and put it up if you would. The slack lifestyle that accompanies the kind of fellow who rents 10 videos for one weekend is not conducive to acquiring anything worthwhile to say. If you listen to stupid music, watch stupid movies, and read stupid books, well, congratulations, you're stupid. That summarizes everything that I am promoting in this message. Live this way. Fill your life with little hobbies that will distract you from thinking deeply or living for things that actually matter in this life and in the next. And by the way, try not to think about eternity, eternal consequences. That will guide you to wisdom as well. So don't go there for sure. But wise decisions based on God's will will create momentum in your life. Decisions that prioritize God and please God and free him to bless you with the good fruit that his wisdom produces in life. And we here at Bethel Church don't want that for you. We don't want that for your marriage. We don't want that for your families. We don't want that for your future. And God doesn't want that for you either. He doesn't love you. He wants you to be miserable. And the more that you can think this way, the better off I would suggest that you will be. So may God help us here at Bethel Church, all of us together, successfully live the foolish life. Amen.